turn to now our scripture passage, which, which is from Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33. And we, as we've been going through the gospel of Mark, we find two instances where Jesus seems to kind of act out of character. The one instance is that you find Jesus cursing a fig tree, which is just strange on anyone's account. And then the second instance is Jesus cleanses out the temple, the Jerusalem temple, uh, the very epicenter of God's presence. Um, All these events, right, very strange. But at the heart of what Jesus is doing and communicating is that he does not want, or at least God does not want, us to simply say and do the things that look spiritual, but on inside, on the inside of our hearts and spiritual lives, that we remain dead. That's far from what God wants. And so these two episodes of the withering, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing out the temple, is really Jesus' way of saying, I want us to get back to the heart of worship. I really want us to be sincere and genuine of what it means to bring our hearts before God. And now we have this episode, in light of all that, where Jesus is challenged. But why? Let's dive into this. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33. And if you are able, can you please stand and rise with me for the reading of God's word today? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And when they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May it continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine a quick word of prayer here? Uh, Father God, as we come before you, challenges to your authority are, are nothing new. If anything, we probably bring our own challenges before you. And we ask like during this time that as we come before you, would you simply soften our hearts to receive, to hear you out, to understand what is your heart's desire for us in our lives. Because if you're a God serious enough to give up your only son for us, then surely we can give these 30 minutes to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the season of the NFL playoffs. I'm not really into football, but you know I, I know a lot of diehard enthusiasts are. Uh, but for me and my family, what we've been watching is the AFC uh, Asian Cup games. It's soccer. And uh, last Saturday, we watched the highlights of South Korea versus Jordan. Oh, and it was super stressful. 
My whole family sat in the bed and we're watching the game together. And as we're watching the game, like Korea is down two to one. And like, it just seems like once they, once Jordan hit the second goal, my son was like, oh, it's over. Just turn it off. I'm like, no, this, we're not bandwagons. We're going to see this to the end, even if they lose or whatever. And we're keep watching and our hopes keep getting dashed. The time limit's running out. And just at the last two minutes, they score a goal and they tie it. And we're like ecstatic. And like my hands start dripping with sweat. It's like my natural response to things when I'm stressed out. And I'm like, man, what, what is it about games? You know, what is it about sports that like, make us act in a certain way. Like, I, I can't watch sports with you with my favorite teams because I don't know what kind of things will come out of my mouth, you know? I get just too into it. Whether it's like sports games or board games, we get like very enthusiastic about these things. Why are we so encapsulated by these things? And I just think it's one thing. It's a primal emotion for all of us that we understand the primal feeling of what it means to be a loser or what it means to be a winner. It's a story of our lives. See, whether you like it or not, we all play the game. And everyone has to play. It's a game between winners and losers. Rules are very simple. Just be a winner. Make the right investments. Know the right people. Get into the right school. Find that good job for yourselves. Travel as often as you can. Eat at the nicest places. Uh, uh, drive this kind of car. Wear these kind of clothes. Lose this much, uh, this much kind of weight. Reach these kind of milestones. You just got to win. You got to be a winner. And we're used to this. Everybody has got to play the game. There's no choice. Everyone has to play. Question is, whose rules do you play by? Whose rules do you play by? We all play this game, winners and losers. And yet, God wants us to see that when we conform our lives to his, regardless of what outcomes we experience as losers or winners, that if we conform our lives and hearts to him, there's a deeper capacity for joy, regardless of what happens. That's his rules. That's his end game. But do you believe him? I want us to consider three things about this passage. One is there's authority at play here. Whose authority do you abide by, right? And then there's, secondly, uh, something is amiss in our lives, right? If you're not, if the authority in your life that ultimately guides and drives you is not God itself, something will be amiss. And then last of all, there's an affirmation that God gives to all of us if we truly conform our hearts and lives to his. So let's look at the first part, authority. See, I don't, I don't have TikTok, um, but I do read about the trends that are happening on TikTok that go viral. And one of these trends that captured my attention is that this idea of silent walking. Silent walking as a way of helping with mental health and all that stress stuff. 
Now I'm all for walking. I know all of its benefits. I think walking is great. All of us should do it. But what amuses me about this, uh, uh, these viral videos about silent walking is that these influencers, they make it seem like they've discovered something new, you know? And they're monotonizing. They're, they're making all this money off something. Check this out, silent walking. That's amusing to me. See, the thing is, I don't think the discovery is about silent walking. Rather, I really believe that this trend, what it's revealing about us is how we've become, how we become so immersed in a culture of hyper productivity, of overachieving, of constantly planning, go, 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 no quit and no quiet, that we're so immersed to that, that the idea of a silent walk has now become novel to us. That's what I think. We're all prone to get ahead. We've got to win. We're so used to this noise. So the idea of a silent walk with no agendas, that seems new. Silent walking might have been a trend, but it's actually, I believe it's a cry for humanity to recover it or what's left of it. And you find Jesus in this scene. What is he doing? He's taking a walk. He walks within the midst of the temple. You see, a couple verses ago, we learned that Jesus cleanses out this temple. He's flipping over tables in anger because people are buying and selling uh, sacrifices uh, while also exchanging currency. And the problem for Jesus with this whole scenario is how people were so distracted from doing all these business deals that they forgot the main purpose and reason why they should be there in the first place, to meet with God. Too many distractions. So he's flipping over tables, he's getting rid of people, and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Gone are are the sacrificial systems, and now Jesus says, now prayer is the way we draw near to God. Jesus changes the system. He's changing the rules to things. But some people don't like it. Guess who doesn't like the change? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Who are these guys? They are the rule keepers. They don't want things to change. They are the religious elites of their time. And to have all three of these people mentioned is the highest form of the Jewish court system. right? So think about it as the supreme court that gathers together. Only the high-profile cases with serious ramifications can make it on this level. And so here is the supreme court coming over to Jesus, and on the spot, without any warning, they ask a question. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to even do this? And it's a legitimate question. Jesus is overthrowing centuries of how things have been done. And generally speaking, there's this understanding that legitimate authority, especially when it comes to the temple, uh, uh, has has to have legitimate authority. Right? So when you think about the office of the chief priests, they gained their authority coming from the lineage of of the priest Aaron. That's where they got their authority from. When you think about the scribes, they got theirs from the line of Ezra, who was a scribe. 
And when you think about the elders, our leaders, they are elected by the people, but this process of electing elders we find back in the Old Testament with Moses. These are all God-given offices. And you either belong to a line of this authority or one of these office bearers can give you the permission to act, act on their behalf, sort of like deputizing them. So it's a legitimate question that, the, uh, that, this, uh, that all the, the religious elites bring up. Legitimate question. See, in my upbringing, I come from an Asian-American background, and within my upbringing, authority is quite highly emphasized for, for at least my context. So especially things like respecting your elders, listening to people of authority, and especially when it came to your parents. You just don't question their authority. It's what I grew up with. And the thing about my cultural background, uh, it, uh, it never occurred to me like to call my parents by their names. Right? They were always mom and dad. But when I visit my Anglo friends and I, I see their household, they, they, uh, they nonchalantly call out to their mothers, Hey, Jill. Uh, Jill, that's mom, you know? And uh, they'll call out to their fathers, Hey, Jack. Jack, that's dad. It's a culture shock for me. I'm not judging it. It's just different. It's just different for me. It never occurs to me. And the thing about my cultural context is that you never question authority figures no matter what, at least not directly to their face. So like, for example, my mother, she'd always, you know, cook us food. And um, whenever she cooks steak, I, I dread it because she doesn't know how to cook steaks. It's always extra, extra crispy. And she puts it on the table, kids, time for dinner. You know, I'm like, it's, it's like super hard to even cut through the meat, but I eat it. You know, I don't tell my mom, oh, this is terrible. I don't, I don't want to eat it or it upsets my stomach. You just bite into it. You eat it. You sink it down and hope you're okay the next day, right? You don't question authority. And most of my Anglo friends, I'll share that with them and they'll look at that and they'll say, wow, that, that doesn't seem healthy. You should express your opinions about this. And yeah, there's healthy things about a high view of authority and there's negative things too. But I want to also ask, is, is the Western culture of how they view authority just as, uh, is that better? Is that a better option? Because I feel like in the West, we find authority suspicious. It's because there's a greater authority at play here. It's the authority of my personal opinions. That's what it is in the West. My personal opinions. And you know, to me, that's shocking for me too, because like I've never seen people argue with doctors about what they think is the right thing, like experts, right? These are experts. And they say, no, 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 we don't trust your authority because me, myself, and my opinions matter more. It's crazy to me to think about this. I am an individual. But is that really that much better? Because I'll tell you what, you can only exist as an individual because you belong to a certain community. And a community only exists within the structures of authority. No matter how much we express of an individual, we are set apart from everyone else. But you know what? Guess what all the companies are doing? The tech companies are banking off us because they've got algorithms for people just like you. We're not that special. 
I don't mean that in a demeaning way. Every time I go to Los Angeles, everyone looks like they're cutouts from Kinfolk Magazine or Uniqlo. And up here, it seems like people have just shopped at REI or something, or Patagonia or something. No matter how individualized you are, how many personal choices you have, it's still affected by some authority in your life. You are still affected by some authority in your life. See, when the religious elites, they ask Jesus about his authority, they're actually not really asking a question. Because when you look up here, back in chapter 18, uh, back in verse 18, it says that the scribes and the chief priests, they were seeking a way to destroy him. So the mindset that they have is, what gives you the right to tell us what to do? What gives you the right to tell me what to do with my life? And is this not the very same question we ask of God on a daily basis? What gives you the right in my life? What gives you the right to comment about how I deal with money? What gives you the right to, deal, uh, to, to comment on how I live out my sexuality? What gives you the right to determine my identity or to determine what marriage is supposed to be like? Who are you to tell me what to do? Who gives you the right? You know, as a parent, I'm uh, struggling with how to understand my own authority as a, a father figure, as a parent. Like on the one hand, I don't want to be overly authoritative. Just do what I say because I said so. But at the same time, I don't want to be extra lenient. Oh, it's okay for you to hit your sister. You're just expressing yourself. Do what you want. And that balance in between two, it's a tricky place to find. It's hard to understand. My, my uh, son, he was um, brushing his teeth and he was jumping on the bed while brushing it. And all of a sudden, we, we like looked at him. We sternly told him, hey, you got to stop. Focus on brushing your teeth. And, you know, his response to us were, was, oh, grownups are so mean. So we had to like talk with him, have a genuine conversation. Like we're telling him, we're only saying these things because we want you to be safe. And what you're doing right now is dangerous. You can stab your throat, uh, so violent, but you could, you know, hurt yourself by, you know, by jumping up and the toothbrush can go in your mouth. Do you really want that? Like, our job is to keep you safe. Our job is to make sure you can thrive. And I realize that's the whole point about authority, why God gives it in the first place. He's trying to keep his people safe. He wants his people to thrive. That's why God uses his authority. It's about love. But apart from authority, apart from love, it can feel very, very off. Something is amiss. Second point here. When you see cops on the side of the road, you don't think much of it, right? They're just doing their routine stops. But when you see three cops gathered together, you know something's going down. That's this situation here. Think about this. Uh, think about what the chief priests, scribes, and elders are doing here. Jesus plays their game, right? He plays their little game here. Answer me with this one question, and I'll give you guys what you want. But if you don't, you don't get what you want. And here's the question, million-dollar question here, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
Tell me about John's baptism. Is it from heaven or is it from man? And guess what the question is about? Where did John the Baptist get his authority? Where does John the Baptist get his authority from? And say so they, they do a team huddle together. Can't be good. These are Bible experts. This is a Bible question. They should know. They should say it all at once. And yet instead they consult with each other. Why are they doing this? If they say from heaven, then it legitimizes Jesus' authority because it means that John the Baptist has been given God's, uh, has God given authority as a prophet. And back in chapter 1, verse 7 up here, John says of Jesus, after me comes he who is mightier than I. So they can't say heaven because then it discredits themselves. But if they say the baptism is from man, man given, this doesn't work either. Because everyone believed John was a prophet. Even the scribes and the, uh, the, the chief priests here, even they believe he's a prophet. So how do these Ivy League scholars respond to Jesus' question here, the brightest mind? We do not know. We don't know. We do not know. Which is a great big lie. But why do they lie? Because they don't want things to change. They want to uh, they want to keep the sacrificial system, the temple taxes, to keep the same results and ultimately keep their positions of power. That's all it is. We don't want things to change. And doesn't this sound familiar in our own lives? That no matter how many times we tell ourselves, money doesn't buy you happiness, but we can't stop thinking about it, can you? No matter how many times we tell ourselves success and accomplishments, they can't define who you are. We sure do work hard to keep ourselves from failing. You know what I believe these situations are called? Life lies. They're life lies. The idea that unless you have this in your life, then you are absolutely nothing. Life lie. Life lies are strong. And truth be told, the easiest person to fool is always going to be yourself. You are the easiest person to fool. See, in downtown San Jose, there's this park called Monopoly Park, and they built this life-size Monopoly board. I thought it'd be cool to check out on the website. It looked pretty cool. Um, but when I got there, it's very underwhelming. But you guys could still go to check it out. And, like, you can't really play there because the park doesn't come with dice or the housing fixtures or play money and all that. But with a little imagination, you, you can play this Monopoly game together. So I like tell my kids about the rules and how we're going to play this game. Uh, and I explain it very clearly, very simply for them. So we start the game. And guess what? They don't follow the rules. Jeez. All they do is they just, they just forget everything I say. And they just walk around the board a few times. That's their version of fun. Walking around this board. 
and I felt the game. And the thing is, I followed them around, right, around this board. And the more I kept falling around, right, I started to get dizzy. But I also thought, what is the point of this game? Right, we're just going around in circles. And then it made me think about life, how it sometimes feels that way, like we're going around in circles. One writer, she put it this way, that she argues that none of us would ever center our lives around uh, grocery shopping or taxes because these things, they're a means to an end. They're not the meaning and purpose of life for us. We just do them so that we can get on with our lives. But then she asks, what about earning money? Suppose I go for a swim. Why do I do it? I swim for the sake of health. I want to be healthy so that I can work. And I work for the sake of money. And money is for the sake of food, drinks, housing, recreation, and exercise. All of which make it possible for me to work. I have described a life of utter futility. End quote. Around and around the board we go. It's depressing to think about. Around and around we go. Lifeline. It doesn't have to be about work and money. It can be about anything that you center your lives around. But what are we supposed to do? You know, Pastor Amos, what are we supposed to do? This, this is just life. This is just how the things are, you know? We have to work. We have to think about these things. We can't not think about these things. What are we supposed to do? It's like an impossible situation. It's not going to change. Life lie. Life lie. When Jesus changes the temple system, he's changing our approach to God. And God is signifying here, or Jesus is letting us know that when my people approach me, they will come empty-handed in prayer. When my people approach me, they will come empty-handed in prayer so that they might know they have nothing to offer me to begin with. Nothing to offer. And to be in the presence of God is the very reminder that our existence comes from a creator God who specifically has created all of you because you mean something to him. Why else is your existence here? And that is what he is getting to the heart of. And you're right. The game of life might not change. But you just don't have to live according to its rules. Because in Christ, you truly get the affirmation you actually need. Which brings me to my last point here, affirmation. Unless God is at the center of our lives and claims all authority over it, you will constantly walk out in circles or squares in this analogy. But when God is the center, work no longer has to control your identity, but instead it becomes an act of service. Parenting no longer has to be a stressful pursuit of finding the right technique or uh, uh, finding the right philosophy style, but entrusting God that the, that the kids are God's children first. 
The future doesn't have to give you so much anxiety and worry because God says you're not thinking far enough because your future in Christ is glorious. See, in this last verse, Jesus tells the religious elites, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. He beats them at their own game, and he goes free. But you know what I think about here? I wonder, why didn't Jesus right then and there reveal his authority, his power, in such a profound and unforgettable way just to silence them once and for all? He could have done it easily. You know what I mean? Just end this right now. Show them who you are. I mean, if someone is trash-talking with you uh, to you and undermining you in every single way, you want to put them in their place. What's holding Jesus back? He's playing an entirely different game. Only it's not a game. My... Um, my kids, my family, we like to play game nights and all that. And um, I have this problem when it comes to my son. I like, I like talking trash with him just to egg him on so he'll try harder. So we'll play Mario Kart. I'll ask him, hey, Miles, are you hungry? He's like, no, why? Pre- prepare to eat my dust, you know? And then he'll, he'll try even harder, you know? And it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a problem of mine. And Kathy lets me know many times. And... Um, we're playing so, like, on this family night, we play uh, Pictionary, Team Pictionary. Miles teams up with mom. I team up with Amelia. You know, she's four years old. She's still learning how to draw. And every time it was her turn, you know, we, we wouldn't get the results that I wanted. Let's just put it that way. But each drawing, Kathy will, like, be encouraging her and saying, wow, I like the details you put in this time. Oh, I could truly tell that it's a starfish. Oh, I like where your mind is at. And like as the game ended, again, I didn't get the result that I wanted. There was much gloating on the other, on the other team. But like Millie came out feeling so confident, like she accomplished something. It's almost like she won, but we didn't, you know? But that's how she felt. All because of a mother's aff- affirmation. See, when it comes to winning and losing, I realize what happens is not as important as who you become out of it. That's what I realized from this. Do you realize God believes in you more than you actually believe in yourself? God believes in you more than you actually believe in yourself. Not because you're gifted and talented and you got things put together, but because God believes in his own promises that in the, in a place like Philippians 1 6, he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to its completion at the end of the day, at the day of Jesus Christ. That there are no, there is only, there are no losers according to God's eyes. But only one loser in all this. Jesus plays a different game here. He withholds his authority for a very specific reason. He withholds his power because he's playing a very different game here. One in which he loses all status games in life. You want power? He comes in the form of a baby. 
You want riches? Jesus became poor. You want recognition? You want all the prestige in this world? He had no formal education under any rabbi. You want fame? He died a criminal's death. All these things he could have easily overturned and changed. Yet why does he withhold his power to shine and come on top as a winner? Because he was using his authority to absorb the ultimate loss, a cosmic loss for the weight of sinners. Jesus died on the cross a loser so that you might be blessed by his hands to pronounce you blessed. Not a winner, blessed. He lost all status games for your behalf that you might be called a son and a daughter in Christ. And because you have all the affirmation you need, there's a different rule set that you play by. There's a different authority. And it deepens your capacity for joy. Friends, let's learn what it actually means to truly conform our lives to the authority of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's how the fun gets in. Would you pray with me?